Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And as I've already mentioned, we're spending some time over these weeks of Christmas focusing on Christmas. I had not originally planned to do that. I was going to continue to go through the Gospel of John, but we'll pick that up. Um, the second week in January, I'll be out the first week in January, and Ken will be teaching in my place. But we're going to look this morning in Luke chapter 2. Last, last week we looked together at the announcement of Gabriel's arrival in the home of Mary to tell her that she was going to give birth to a son, this young unmarried teenage girl, probably between the ages of 12 and 15, who was engaged to a man by the name of Joseph, was legally married in the sense of a Jewish betrothal, although they were not actually married yet. And so Gabriel shares with her this incredible news that she is going to give birth to a son. So if you look with me in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, this is what Gabriel says to this young teenage girl. He says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom shall have no end. Now this is a pretty... Significant announcement that Gabriel has made to this very young unmarried Jewish girl. And by her own account, she's not married and has not had relations with a man. And this idea of her giving birth is an absolute impossibility. Because these things just don't happen that way. And so she has absolutely no idea how this could ever take place. And Gabriel goes on to say in Luke one thirty-five. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God for nothing is impossible with God. We kind of focus on that statement by the angel Gabriel of this reality that nothing is impossible with God. As we read our Bibles, as we think about the miraculous things that God has done as recorded in the pages of our Bible, not the least of which is the creation of this universe that we know, but also through the very numerous supernatural experiences that are recorded all throughout the Old Testament and then into Jesus' ministry, we should be reminded that nothing is impossible with God. The reason is, is that God is sovereign. He rules over the world that He created And He will, He will make sure that His plans and purposes are fulfilled in this world. So this most important event in all of human history has been made known to this unmarried teenage girl. And then on a night like any other night in an obscure village in Israel, unnoticed by the world, this child is born. But while his birth was like that of every other child, the child was unlike any other child ever born, either before or since. For this child was the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, deity in human flesh, the God-man, Israel's long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world. And it is in his birth that God entered human society as an infant, the Creator of of the universe became a man. Does that not sound impossible? Well, with God all things are possible. The account of this birth seems impossible, yet through God's sovereignty, through God's power, nothing 
is impossible. As John 1 foretells us, the eternal Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So for the first, first few centuries of its existence, the church did not celebrate Christ's birth. Can you imagine that? The first two or three hundred years after the birthing of the church, they didn't celebrate Christ's birth. Some of the early fathers, most notably Origen, even argued against celebrating the birthday of the saints and the martyrs, including Jesus. He reasoned that such people should be honored instead on the day of their martyrdom, not on their birth. He noted that only birthdays mentioned, the only birthdays mentioned in the Bible are those of Pharaoh in Genesis 40 and Herod and Matthew 14, and they viewed birthday celebrations as a pagan custom. So for the first couple of hundreds of years in the church, they didn't celebrate Jesus' birth. By the second century, the actual date of Christ's birth had been forgotten as evidenced by the numerous dates that were proposed for it. Now, I'm going to give you these dates, and if your birthday happens to fall on one of those dates, it doesn't mean a thing. These are just some of the proposed dates based upon some other factors and calculations they made. So they suggested that perhaps he was born on January the 2nd or the 6th, March the 21st or the 25th, April the 18th or the 19th, May the 20th or the 28th, November 17th or the 20th. But the exact date of Jesus' birth is not known and exactly when the early church settled on the date of December 25th is also not known. You hear many people argue against the celebration of Christmas because we don't know historically, by a matter of fact, the exact day that Jesus was born. Well, it doesn't diminish the significance of his birth. It just means being able to put a day and a month to it is not possible. So the first recorded reference to that date December 25th, as the day of Christ's birth is found in the writings of Sextus Julius Africanus early in the 3rd century. The earliest evidence of the church celebrating Christmas on December 25th comes from the 4th century manuscript known as the Chronography or the Calendar of 354. And according to that document, Christmas was being celebrated on December 25th by the church at Rome no later than A.D. 336. That date was gradually adopted by the church as a whole over the next several centuries. Now, I could have read to you some of the many other theories behind the pagan celebrations and how Christians wanted to counteract those celebrations, but it gets very, very lengthy and it really begins to fall into folklore more than it does anything directly related back to history or what could be verified within history. So this is kind of the context of what we're looking at, the impossibility of Christ's birth as told by the angel Gabriel to this unmarried teenage girl Mary. And now we read specifically what takes place. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, probably one of the most known chapters in all the Bible, the account of the birth of Jesus. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. 
While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. So in this passage, we are going to see the sovereignty of God on display in ways that the unbelieving world would never recognize, but faithful Jews should have recognized. And we, by looking back at a completed revelation of God to us through His Word, are able to recognize today. So very basic three-point outline. Number one is the cause. What we look at here, what we focus on, is outside of the passage of Scripture that we've just read, but it is woven into the main idea, and that is the sovereignty of God. The cause here is prophecy fulfilled. So last week we looked at one of the prophecies related to the birth of Christ, and that is found in Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. And this is precisely when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her, told her that although you were a virgin, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you and you are going to give birth to a son and you will name him Emmanuel. So Gabriel's visit to Mary announcing the virgin birth is an indication that God is at work. Now remember that there's been a period of around 400 years where there has been no prophet It seems like God has left the nation of Israel alone, and here we have the most profound event in human history being announced, and that is the birth of the Messiah, and it indicates that God is at work. So this fulfillment of prophecy is also found in another passage of Scripture which relates directly to what we're looking at today. This passage is found in Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrath, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth from me to be, the, to be ruler in Israel. His goings, are, excuse me, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And if you look back at the inheritance that was given to the nation of Israel, there is no mention of a clan by the name of Bethlehem. Too small, too insignificant, inconsequential, perhaps even forgotten. And here through the prophet Micah, it is established that one is going to come from Israel, from Bethlehem, who is going to rule all of eternity. Very clearly a messianic prophecy that is given and is now in the process of being fulfilled in the pages of Luke. So in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled, for this ruler to be born in Bethlehem, God would impose His sovereign rule over the world He created in a most fascinating way. Joseph and Mary lived where? Do you remember? They lived in Nazareth. Galilee of the Gentiles, a very obscure village in the northern part of Israel. The estimates are that it was at least 75 and as much as 90 miles away from Bethlehem, which was found in southern Israel. And so when we look at this humanly, we think, well, there's a big problem here. Mary is pregnant, and she lives in Nazareth, and she's a long, long way of Bethlehem. How in the world and why in the world would they ever travel to Bethlehem 
outside of God's sovereign rule. Now what looks to be a problem for us is not a problem for God at all. God wasn't wringing His hands saying, what are we going to do? They're in the wrong place. This prophecy isn't going to be fulfilled. This changes everything. Is this what God thinks? Is this what God does? Absolutely not. God never says, we've got a problem. I made a mistake. We've got to get busy and put into motion plan B or C. That doesn't happen at all. Remember, God chose Joseph and Mary out of all the peoples in Israel to be the parents of this holy child that was going to be born. But to make sure that the birth of Jesus has significant prominence in the eyes of the Jews and of the unbelieving world, God orchestrates the circumstances by which Jesus would be born and fulfill this prophecy that was given hundreds of years before. This was not a manipulation by Joseph and Mary. This was not the in-laws or the outlaws getting together and say, based upon everything you told us and based upon what said, we got to get busy, we got to get on our way. Didn't happen that way at all. The cause for this whole thing to take place is the fulfillment of prophecy to demonstrate the faithfulness of God, the accuracy of His prophets, and the validity of everything that God has said to His people. Number two in our outline is the call. This begins our passage. Look again with me in verse 1. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. So this begins with the little phrase, in those days. Can I remember, there's no coincidence in Scripture. When Luke says, in those days, it suggests a period of significance and importance one that even has eschatological significance, and very specifically it is the birth of the Savior. So in those days, there is a decree given. A decree is a royal edict. This is different from anything that you and I would know today because we have this three-tiered system within our government. You have the executive branch, you have the judicial branch, and you have the legislative branch. And they're supposed to work together to enact the laws that govern our land, but not so in the old Roman world. When the emperor spoke, you said, yes, sir, how high? I will be glad to do that. So he is going to give a royal edict, and it was never ever to be considered optional. It came from the very top, and it was a requirement to be followed. Now, if you think our government has overstepped its bounds, you've got to think back to the ancient world. You didn't tell the emperor no. You didn't tell him wait. You didn't say, well, have you ever thought about it? You did it, or you probably were going to die. So he gives this royal edict, and the royal edict is this. There is going to be a census. So it wasn't uncommon for a census to be taken. And when a census was taken within the Roman world, there were two primary purposes for that. Number one, it was to register young men for military service. The second reason that a census was given was taxation. We got to know how many of you are out there because we want to make sure that every single one of you are paying your tax because our empire depends upon taxing you. And this was really called a poll tax. So they wanted to find out exactly how many people were in this inhabited world 
so that the Romans could collect the appropriate amount of tax. So the Jews were exempt from military service. So very clearly this census has as its purpose taxation upon the people. So the census that is mentioned here is of great importance. And if you'll notice, it's referenced in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, and in verse 5. So this census has a very significant importance in the mind of Luke and in the minds of his readers. There is significant historical debate as to the historical accuracy of this census, but Luke's readers in this first century would have known exactly what Luke was referring to. Now, without getting into a ton of detail, we could spend 20 minutes talking about the various reasons why this census has historical debate. We'll put a little bit of piece to it in just a couple of minutes, but that's not really our main focus. We have to remember that Luke is writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with his audience as the primary objective, but still very applicable to us today some 2,000 years later. So it's part of our responsibility to figure out the context, the audience, the culture, etc., so we can understand what's being referenced here. But scholars and theologians have researched this census and they found some problems that are very difficult to reconcile, but it doesn't make it inaccurate, and that's what I'll summarize for you in just a second. So this royal edict for a census was issued by Caesar Augustus. Now Caesar Augustus is not his name, that is his title. Caesar means emperor, and Augustus means revered or honored one. So think about the implication of the individual who is giving this royal decree. He is the emperor, the one who was honored and revered throughout all the land. Augustus was born Gaius Octavius, and he is the ruler over all of the Roman world. Now you have in the Gospel of Luke, Herod the Great, who is mentioned. Herod the Great is a subordinate of Caesar Augustus. Sometimes we think about Herod the Great thinking that he's the big cheese, but he's not. He's subordinate to Caesar Augustus, the one giving this decree for a census. Augustus ruled from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D., and he was responsible for the Roman world to be solidified as an empire. You take all these fragmented groups, and it was under his rule that they became unified under this Roman powerful monopolist empire that ruled with an iron fist for so many years. He was given an almost godlike status among those that he ruled, and that's one of the reasons why Caesar Augustus means the honored or the revered one. He was the most powerful man in all the world as the emperor over the all-powerful Roman world. So this decree is to go out over all the world, and what it says specifically is over all the inhabited earth. This means specifically the Roman Empire, which had a vast land border all over this region, dominated and ruled by the Romans. His reach and his rule was vast, and the census was going out over the entirety of the Roman Empire for the purpose of collecting this poll tax. Now let's look at verse 2. 
Verse 2 says, This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So here's the third individual introduced to us who has some kind of leadership in the Gospel of Luke. You have Herod the Great, who is a subordinate of Caesar Augustus. Then you have Quirinius, who was a subordinate of Herod the Great. So there is a transition from all the world and the scope of what's being said as Caesar Augustus is introduced into the reader and now it focuses onto Syria, the region where Mary and Joseph are, where Jesus is going to be born and this is Luke's point. This is what Luke wants his readers to be aware of, is this telling of the birth of the Savior is announced in a sense over this world population and it is brought down to a very narrow focus of the individual region where this baby was about to be born. So while Caesar Augustus issued the decree, it was Quirinius who was responsible for executing in the general region where Joseph and Mary were that the census be taken. So the specifics here help to define the time frame that Luke is referencing, but as I mentioned, it's also problematic. Here's the reason that this is most problematic. Quirinius was technically the governor from 6 to 9 AD. So if Jesus was to be born during the census that was taken while he was quote-unquote the governor, that would be inconsistent with what's recorded in the Gospels that Herod the Great, who died in A.D. 4, that couldn't work, right? So if Quirinius was the governor from 6 to 9 A.D., and that's when Jesus was born, then the reference to Herod the Great being in power when Jesus was born would be inconsistent. So King Herod died in 4 A.D. He was alive when when Jesus was born. So these dates are harmonized. The date of the census is harmonized by the fact that the term governor that we see in our English text is a general term that can be used for any official government ruler. So the way that we would probably understand that is we could say so-and-so was a politician, but maybe not holding the most prominent office that a politician would hold during his lifetime. So, for example, if we have an individual who was a state senator, but before that he was a city commissioner, we might refer to him as a politician, indicating that his chief role was that of a, of a state senator, but it actually is referenced in the time that he was a city commissioner. So because there's so many different ways to date what took place in the Bible with Jewish calendar and Roman calendar and differences in what words mean and how they're used, this doesn't create an unresolvable inconsistency between what the Gospels record and the timing of this census. Quirinius was a politician, and it is likely that this census took place when he was holding a role different from the time than he was technically the governor over Syria. So again, Luke's point isn't trying to specify who Quirinius was, but he is identifying the period with which the census was given, and again, his readers would have been very familiar with that. So Luke's focus is to show the sovereign hand of God at work in and through the pagan rulers of the day. Herod, Caesar, and now Quirinius. 
So the way this is specifically executed is that there is a registration that is being required of all the inhabitants of the Roman world. Verse 3, And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. So from a human perspective, there could not have been a worse time for the census to be issued. Months have passed since Gabriel's announcement to Mary that she was going to give birth to a son, and now Mary is advanced in her pregnancy, and she is ready to give birth. But from God's perspective, his hand is at work bringing about the irrefutable proof that this child is the one the Scriptures have been pointing to and that the Jewish world has been waiting for. So one of the things that isn't clear in the narratives that we find related to the birth of Christ is exactly how far advanced Mary was in her pregnancy. Some of what the tradition, I don't want to say implies, but some of what the tradition demonstrates to us is we get the feeling that Mary arrived in Bethlehem and before anything could happen, they hastily made their way into the only place they could find and she gave birth. In reality, they may have been there for several days or a couple of weeks, but the reality is this. She's advanced in her pregnancy and the, the pagan rulers have dictated this census be taken and God is orchestrating these events as a part of his sovereign rule over the world that he created. And we see this now in number three in our outline and that is the coming. We have the cause, this fulfilled prophecy. We have the call and that is to go to Bethlehem to register. And now we see the coming. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. And so the journey begins. Now remember, this is a, at least a 75-mile and as much as a 90-mile journey. And that is if you went through Samaria. Now remember, good faithful Jews didn't go through Samaria. They went around So it's impossible to identify the exact amount of time this journey would have taken. Under the best of circumstances, it could have taken a week to ten days. Under more difficult circumstances, it could have taken significantly longer. This journey was going to be taken by foot or on the back of an animal that walked. They didn't jump in a car and zoom 70 miles on the expressway. They didn't take a bus or a train. There probably wasn't a wagon. They hoofed it. They walked all the way to this place in Bethlehem. And it says here that they went up to Bethlehem, even though they actually traveled south. Bethlehem is of a much higher altitude. And so it's very common for people to go up to Jerusalem, regardless of the direction they traveled, because of the elevation. So Luke does not develop the ancestral genealogy of Joseph the same way that Matthew did, but it's important, and it's not coincidental, that Luke identifies that Joseph is going back to Bethlehem, which is, which is of the house and the family of David. In fact, if you go back and look in your Old Testament, David was in Bethlehem. That's where David was a shepherd. That's where David's family lived. And so Joseph is from the family of David, fulfilling what Gabriel said to Mary, consistent with what Matthew traces out for us in his gospel, consistent with everything that was said in the Old Testament about this 
forward coming Messiah who is going to come from the line of David and rule on the throne of David for all of eternity. So for the purpose of fulfilling prophecy, it's an important point since this connects Jesus' messianic rule all the way back through the line of David, just as the word says it was. Now, Augustus's sovereign rule over the world, in reality, is submissive to the sovereign rule of God. Let me say that again. Augustus's sovereign rule over the world, in reality, is submissive to the sovereign rule of God. Where I have said Augustus, you could put in any leader's name. Putin, Trump, Kim Jong-song, whoever you want to put in there. All of these powerful individuals who seem to have the most power that anybody in the world has ever known are still submissive to the sovereign rule of God. As God orchestrates His plan, as prophesied years earlier, and planned in eternity past are going to take place just as God has purposed. Nothing and no one can change that reality. Regardless of who's in the White House, we don't have to fear because God is in control. Verse 5, So this journey begins in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Now Mary, because of the book of because of the betrothal and the Jewish custom, was legally already married to Joseph, although they had not yet consummated the relationship, and although they did not yet live together, but she travels with him as a legal part of his household, and because she is advanced in her pregnancy. So a lot of people have theorized why Mary had to go. We can only speculate. My speculation is very simply this. She was going to have a baby and she wanted to be with the father. The father was going to see this baby born from his wife and he wanted her to be with him. We can put a lot more into that, but the reality of it is this. Mary could have stayed home and Joseph's family could have taken care of her and this whole journey would have been for naught, but in order to fulfill prophecy, Mary and Joseph are going to make this trip together There's a sense of urgency, probably some kind of a deadline to register based upon the edict of the emperor. And so they make their way all the way to Bethlehem. So whether it was the requirement of the census or the desire of Joseph to be with Mary or Mary with Joseph, Mary is going to Bethlehem with David to register exactly as God had planned. In verse 6 we read this, And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. So Jesus is born some point after they have arrived in Bethlehem. There's no indication of how long the journey took or how long they stayed in Bethlehem. We don't know if they'd already registered and decided to stay for a few days because of her advanced pregnancy. We just don't have any of those kinds of details. But the point is this. God's sovereign plan had been accomplished because Jesus was born exactly as Scripture had prophesied He would. Luke reports the most significant event in human history with an almost anticlimactic simplicity. And while she was there, Jesus was born. (laughs) Think about when your first child was born. 
probably caught everybody you knew. And if you didn't have a phone, I'm sure you were busy writing letters, mailing to everybody that you knew. You couldn't get on your phone and tweet and do all that kind of stuff back in these days. So when Jesus is born, the earth didn't shake, the trumpets in heaven didn't blast, the angels didn't appear, God didn't speak from heaven. Luke just simply reports that Jesus was born. He's born in the humblest of places. Verse 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So with just her young husband, far from family and friends, Mary has given birth to her firstborn. Now it's important that we understand this word firstborn here. This is not her only son. It's not her only child. The Catholic Church teaches that Mary remained a virgin throughout all the days of her life. The problem with that is that that's inconsistent with what Scripture reports to us. After the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary had normal marital relations. We read this in Matthew 125. But Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So the implication is there that during the pregnancy, before their wedding was finalized, they did not consummate the relationship, but after Jesus was born, they did. Scripture also tells us very, very clearly that Mary had given birth to many other children. It reads in Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 56, when the Jewish leaders were questioning Jesus, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? So this is important for a couple of reasons. One, it shows that Mary is just an instrument that God chooses to use, that her primacy in Scripture is related only to the miraculous birth of Christ. And as we fast forward hundreds and thousands of years later, she is not an individual to be worshipped or venerated or prayed to or anything else. She's simply an individual that God chose to bring about His sovereign plan, and that is giving birth to to the one and only Son. So Jesus had several siblings from Joseph and Mary's union, but Luke makes notes of this being the firstborn, the one conceived by the Holy Spirit before Joseph and Mary had consummated their relationship. And after this birth, Jesus is swaddled. He's wrapped in strips of cloth for warmth and security. It gives to us a very vivid picture of the true infancy of Jesus He was born as a baby in a manger. And oh, by the way, for the most part, the world doesn't have a big problem with Jesus, the baby in the manger. But they do have a problem as Jesus, the resurrected Lord and Savior, who rules over the world and will come back to judge it. So here he is, this historical infant baby who's wrapped in these cloths and placed in a manger. A manger is a feeding trough. That's what that word actually means in the Greek. He was placed in a feeding trough, which gives rise to the tradition that Jesus was born in a stable. Now, Scripture doesn't say that. We assume that because of the feeding trough. And even though it could be correct, Jesus was born in a place where animals were kept 
and or fed. Now, because of the census and the large numbers of people who were coming to Bethlehem, there was no room for them in what is called a common lodging place. There is no mention of a heartless innkeeper like we see in the reenactments and the cartoons and the other stories that tell us about Jesus' birth. They didn't knock on the door and the innkeeper said, go away, there's no room. There's no indication anything like that happened. Most believe that in Bethlehem, there was no commercial lodging place for Joseph and Mary to even seek a room. Hey, we've got five shekels, we need a room, she's pregnant. No such place probably existed. What was common is this place called a caravansary, a caravan with an S-A-R-Y on the end, a caravansary, and this was a common place where large groups of travelers could find shelter under a single roof. Not a place where there were many rooms, but just a single place where people could come in as they were traveling on the road, and it is most likely that there was no place like this for them to stay. So it is likely that this is what Luke has in mind. This place is full, and so Mary and Joseph find someone in Bethlehem who is willing to allow them to stay in a place for animals, and here Mary gives birth to Jesus. The King of kings and the Lord of lords has come into the world that he created. He was born in the most comfortless conditions, a smelly, filthy, chilly shelter, surrounded by noisy animals. And this is so consistent with how the New Testament writers portray Jesus, most specifically the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. I remember back to the preparations that Marcy and I made when we were getting ready for our first son to be born. I mean, we bought everything you're supposed to have. We had everything measured out. We had it marked. And we were so excited to welcome this baby into the world and to give to him the best that we could, just like any parent would. And here is the incarnate God-man born into a place fit for animals. So inconsistent with His true nature and His true glory and His true worth. But Jesus wasn't born in this obscurity as Luke simply portrays it. Luke goes on to tell us that an angel does appear to the shepherds who were out in the fields tending their flocks. And in keeping with this humble birth, the angel reports to the humble shepherds who were told the most exciting news they have ever heard. Luke 2.11 For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So they go to see this baby for themselves. And when they do, and they share with Mary and Joseph everything that the angels had told them about this baby being born, they return back to, their, to the fields glorifying and praising God. You know, I think we would all do well as a part of our Christmas tradition to find the most rustic of mangers that we could find and put some hay in it 
And find a little baby doll and stick it in there and let it be a reminder of the humble means by which the King of Kings entered in the world with the very specific purpose of the cross before Him to secure our redemption, to be with Him for all eternity, to see Him in the fullness of His glory, to worship Him without the presence of sin, and to give back to Him all that we can knowing the full brunt and weight of His worth. But we don't have to wait for eternity to start that process. We do that today. We do that as we look back at our salvation. We do that as we look forward to our future glorification, desiring to honor Him with every day that we live, every breath that we take, giving thanks for what it is He has done for us. Would you join me in prayer? Father, as common and as familiar as the story is for us, it just drips with significance. To see your sovereign hand at work in orchestrating the fulfillment of what the prophets of old had said about the Messiah, we've seen to come true in the pages of Scripture. Father, how we give you thanks for allowing us to know that, to understand that, to have faith in that. We know that that is a gift from you, not anything that we could have determined on our own. And we give to you all the thanks and all the praise that we know to give because we understand what Christmas is all about. God, make this event new in our heart. I pray that it would recapture our affection in a very specific way. And that not just at Christmas, but all throughout the days of our lives, we would marvel at what you've done for us in the birth of your son in the city of Bethlehem to a virgin by the name of Mary in a place that is fit for an animal. Father, we give you thanks for what you've done for us through Christ. May we be faithful to give to you what you deserve and are worthy of through the lives that we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing to him.